0: The Dalai Lama once said that today, more than ever before, life must be characterized by a sense of universal responsibility, not only nation to nation and human to human, but also human to other forms of life. Join me in conversation with some of the world's most creative thinkers to explore the importance of ethics to this responsible decision making in today's technologically infused world. Artists entrepreneurs, scientists, journalists, academics and beyond navigate the gray, the blend of right and wrong, of opportunities and risks on all sides of our most important challenges, whether gene editing, civilian space travel, or artificial intelligence. They also probe the age-old and more ethically black and white behaviors, such as sexual misconduct, human trafficking, and life-threatening inequality. Our guests endeavor to transcend religious, political, national, and ethnic perspectives, but recognize the inevitable biases we all bring. The term ethics can make us uncomfortable. At the ethics incubator we confront the e-word head-on. It may be inconvenient or even unclear, but ethical conundrums underpin almost every headline and affect almost every human choice. With truth under threat and the boundaries of humanity blurring, I believe that ethical decision-making tethers us to our humanity. As always, we welcome your thoughts.
1: Rob, thank you so much for joining me. We're both still sheltering at home in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we're here thanks to Zoom. I know that we have a lot to talk about about your exciting new book, Intentional Integrity, and we have a lot to talk about about Airbnb and current events, COVID and the recent tragedy with Mr. Floyd. But let's please ground the conversation in, how did you get to where you are? How did you get to writing a book about ethics and being chief ethics officer of Airbnb? And and what is a chief ethics officer anyway?
2: i never thought i'd write a book to be honest four years ago i was the general counsel at airbnb but while i was the general counsel i could see that the world was really shifting Uh, me too was very was coming out companies were increasingly being called out for bad behavior leaders were being called out uber right down the street was having a number of difficulties. And it really struck me. Uh, I'd rather learn from other people's mistakes. How could I do something at Airbnb that would instill integrity into the culture of the company uh, so that we wouldn't have issues along those lines? And it really got me thinking about what companies have traditionally done and why they weren't working. And I sat down with our CEO, Brian Chesky, and in typical Brian fashion, Brian looked at me and said, uh, go figure it out and go big. So you know that got me on a journey uh, to think about integrity, why it's so important to companies and where they often go wrong. Uh, and we ended up having a fantastic experience really at Airbnb. Uh, the employees uh, really embraced what we were doing around integrity. I, it, it hit a bit of a, a chord with, with people. And the the program was really very successful, and that's when I thought, well, wouldn't it be neat if we could uh, try to scale this and get other companies to focus on the issue? And that's why we ended up doing the book.
1: So what have been some of the biggest ethical challenges that Airbnb has faced? And And I should say, when I work with companies myself or when I'm on ethics advisory boards, one of the first things I always say is, let's look around at what everybody else has done, and let's make the assumption that it can happen in your shop and not the assumption that isn't that great, somebody else has gotten in trouble. What you said about Uber, et cetera, really resonates with me. Um, But what have been some of the biggest challenges that Airbnb has faced?
2: Airbnb has had a number of them, and Airbnb has been a very successful company. And I think when you achieve success, uh, the world expects more from you. The microscope comes out. People take a a good hard look at you, and I think, a few things, you know, one discrimination back in 2016, I had been the general counsel of the company for just a few months and it became apparent that a number of our users were having trouble booking a room because of the color of their skin. They were reporting issues on the internet and it it gathered steam and uh, several lawsuits got filed including the california department of fair employment and housing so you know trying to be a good general counsel i went off and did my research right uh what is airbnb's legal responsibility as a platform uh, is airbnb responsible when host uh contrary to airbnb's wishes and instructions commit acts of discrimination so i go do my work i go in to meet with brian brian uh looks at me as i start talking about the the law brian looks at me and says i don't care i said what do you mean you don't care he said i don't care what the law is if people are being discriminated against on airbnb because of the color of their skin we're failing as a company because airbnb's mission is all about connecting people through immersive travel so that when you travel you really get to know someone from a different part of the world, someone who's different than you are. So Brian pointed out, we're failing in our fundamental mission if discrimination is happening on our platform. I don't care what the law is, we're going to fix this. And that was, I think, owning the issue and recognizing why it was so important to the company's mission to fix it uh, was a powerful step for, it was powerful for me as the general counsel and powerful for the employees to see the way that we were gonna respond to something like this.
1: Well, anytime you send the message, ethics above and beyond the law and leadership is committing to ethics above and beyond the law is fantastic, particularly because the law will never be meeting the highest standards of ethics. And we probably wouldn't want it to. That that would be excessive, that would be unenforceable. So um, Airbnb is a pioneer in the sharing economy was learning not only about how to create what, what almost looks like a social movement in addition to a business, particularly with the mission about belonging. And, um, but also exploring, you know, what are the edges of the law? What are the edges of the ethics? Because, because nobody had been there before. I mean, Uber was kind of there in a different way, um, but this is very different. Having some people come into your home, um, very, very different. So another example of sort of one of the biggest challenges you've had at Airbnb, this is clearly a big one with the discrimination
2: well, yeah, the discrimination certainly challenged us as a company. Um, there are other challenges as well. You know, uh, uh, individuals, uh, they, they, when you have a million different stays in a give, any given night, you're going to have bad actors. So another challenge that Airbnb faced was, you know, what happens when uh, someone is not a good guest? They are u- using a listing to throw a wild party and disrupt the neighborhood. Or maybe they'll use the opportunity to to break things in the home and steal. How do you handle that? And that was, again, another early ethical challenge that the company faced. And the the first high-profile incident involved a host by the name of EJ. And EJ's home was ransacked, things stolen, uh, things in in the home defaced. And at the time, Airbnb wasn't responsible. Right. Uh, and it, while Airbnb expressed empathy, uh, the company didn't offer any financial options at that time. And EJ was quite upset. And it really started to, to generate a lot of criticism online. It, it actually reminded me of the early days of eBay, when you used to send a check or a money order. And then if you got a counterfeit item or didn't get an item at all, eBay didn't do anything about it. That's not an acceptable reaction. And I think you know the, Brian and Airbnb realized that they needed to step up and do more. So in response to EJ's experience, Brian thought, well, maybe I, we should be offering insurance of some sort for hosts. And Brian told me a great story. He said that he went to the board, a board member to talk about this. Um, the company was still fairly young. There wasn't a lot of money. And Brian said to the board member, maybe we should offer $5,000 of insurance. And the board member said, great idea, but you need to add at least one zero. So they went out at 50,000 and now the number's up to a million dollars. There's a recognition that if you wanna build a, a, a great business, you've got multiple stakeholders. And one of those stakeholders for Airbnb were your host. So when something goes wrong, uh, Airbnb needed to demonstrate that it would stand behind the host and be there to help. And uh, that was part of the painful learning curve for the company. But uh, as Brian said, never waste a good crisis. It was a crisis that ultimately, I think, helped the company grow.
1: Right. Well, uh, and certainly Airbnb is is infiltrating many, many different communities. So another stakeholder is the community in which you're operating. Let's turn for a minute to your fantastic book, Say, I've read a lot of ethics books in my time, and this is absolutely one of the best I've seen in terms of being thoughtful and enjoyable and also incredibly useful. There were a couple of themes that came through that really struck me. One is kind of what I'll call banishing arbitrariness. And in many different points in the book, you talk about uh, how to get arbitrariness under control because of all the consequences, the arbitrariness, whether it's in the rules or in the enforcement of the rules. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that, but also uh, perhaps just start by explaining how do you define integrity at Airbnb?
2: Right, well you start with the classic definition of integrity, doing the right thing even when no one's watching. What's happened though is that in today's modern world, everybody's always watching. There's not a lot of privacy anymore, right? In the old days, uh, employ- when something was done that was, wasn't right inside of a company, but nobody knew about it, nobody talked about it, it got swept under the rug. Today, something goes wrong. Employees are empowered. They have the internet as their forum, and they'll speak up loud and clear if something is happening that's not uh, in accordance with their values. Same thing with customers. Uh, you know, th- these are, the world has evolved so that you are now, as a leader, front and center, Um, And if your company's values are not aligned with the rest of the world, you're really going to hear about it. So I think integrity now has to take on this notion of as a company, what's your North star? What do you stand for? What's your purpose? Profit is not purpose. Profit is a byproduct of running a good company and it's essential in order to finance the company, but a company has got to stand for more than that. So, as a company uh, in understanding integrity you have to figure out what your purpose is and understand how are you going to act when confronted with something that may be contrary to your purpose you have to commit to that north star even when it's hard even when it may be something that is contrary to your interest so let's take an example of uh, arbitration we looked at me too. And I was quite concerned by arbitration clauses. Uh, It had become the standard in the world uh, for employees to waive their right to file a lawsuit when they join a company and agree that it would be handled with mandatory arbitration. Now arbitration is great. Saves everybody money uh, usually, it's usually faster. But it has another byproduct, and that is it's usually confidential and secret. So claims of sexual harassment were being funneled into this confidential setting. Cases quietly went away and were settled. Uh, No one knew about it, and the perpetrator was either free to stay at the company or could move to another company um, without fear of consequences. So we sat down and took a hard look at how arbitration was actually not doing well, the right thing for the world. And we asked the question, why do we need a mandatory arbitration clause? Our employees are important to us. If they have a dispute, why are we forcing them into a forum that might ultimately uh, not be the right thing for the world? So we changed it. And we said, you know what? If an employee has an issue at Airbnb, all we ask is that you come tell us what the problem is and give us a chance to work it out. If it's not worked out to your satisfaction then you have the choice of arbitration or filing a lawsuit and it was my belief that if you treat people well with respect um, most of the time they won't ever get to a lawsuit so you're not what what you're giving up as a company here is really very little but what you're gaining is you're gaining some trust and respect with the employees because you're willing to do something that maybe isn't your interest. You're willing to do something for them. And ultimately, what you get back, I think, is well worth it.
1: You raise a very, very interesting example. And there are others around this whole sexual misconduct and, and bullying and harassment, like non-disclosed agreements, that were destined to do the same thing, to sweep these things under the rug. And as we've all seen, um, it doesn't work. Because in today's world, people are willing to violate them and 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 as you say speak out and we've seen all manner of employees speaking out whether it's amazon and the environment and fossil fuels or whether it's google and drones or whether it's uh, uber and the and, and very sexually charged misconduct so uh, i think i think it's incredibly interesting what you say and it's got to contribute to a culture where people feel like they are going to be heard because you have a stake in their being heard
2: that's right uh, you know the, the non disclosure agreement is a good point i was really troubled by the idea that we would make a practice of silencing victims uh, that that struck me as a way to that that, that d- doesn't build trust with your employees and by the way doesn't build trust even with guests or hosts on your platform if you end up in a legal fight with them so we just simply made a policy that any agreements that we make with employees or any lawsuits in general we might Insist that the amount of the settlement be confidential, but we would never require that the underlying facts be held confidential. No matter what happens, even in a settlement, uh, if a victim wants to tell their side of the story, they should be able to tell it. And we shouldn't be afraid of it because, frankly, and
1: uh, you, say, you know, having worked with a lot of different organizations, including big global NGOs and the like, you are a definite leader in this, and I think that is a message that I hope everybody takes home because there is. Uh, that is, by the way, the only reason, the only way we're going to eradicate this problem, not only within companies, but, but uh, more globally.
2: Just turning The very specific- act of saying that helps you yeah. gain trust. The very yeah. act that you can stand up in a room and say, you know what? Um, we're not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of transparency. And we recognize that someone may say something that is negative about our company, but we can't be afraid to hear it. Um, by doing that, I think you gain trust with other stakeholders and actually reduce the potential for future problems. So you're doing the right thing. And I think ultimately, not only are you doing the right thing for the other stakeholders, but you're doing the right thing for yourself.
1: Your book is full of wonderful stories. And as I said, it's not only incredibly educational, it's incredibly enjoyable. But would you pick one that is perhaps sort of the, the most difficult thing you've ever had to face? As chief ethics officer of
2: Airbnb, can I can I tell a story about eBay? Because I told a couple of uh, a couple. Course. Of you, about. Yes, you
1: can tell a story about eBay. And if, just in case um, it wasn't clear, you were general counsel of eBay.
2: Um, I was I I was the head of North America legal for eBay, and what what made this one particularly challenging was that it was early in my career. I had left the federal government, and I went to work for eBay. One of my first jobs uh, at eBay was to set up all the rules around what you could buy and sell on eBay. Could you sell tobacco? Could you sell wine? What about ticket scalping? Um, And the company empowered me to make decisions that, uh, as Meg Whitman told me, Meg said, uh, Rob, you make the decisions, figure out where the law is as best you can in this new internet age. Uh, Figure out where the line is and don't don't get us too close to the line. We'd rather do the right thing. We want a clean, well-lit marketplace. So my first month, I get an email from a user who said, you all are all going to go to jail because you're selling jarts. So that's what I said, jarts. What is a jart? So I go on behind it, look up what a jart is. A a jart was a toy that some uh, manufacturer, I believe back in the 60s, put out. It was a dart, lawn dart, long steel tip point, big plastic fins. And the object of the game was to take these big darts and throw them into rings on the lawn. So, as you might imagine, with kids, kids didn't throw them just into rings on the lawn. They started throwing them everywhere, and kids started ending up in the emergency room with jarts coming out of different parts of their body. Like
1: weapons, they don't sound like toys.
2: No, it 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 was a poorly conceived toy, and so the Consumer Product Safety Commission. ban the toy. Uh, Now, when you ban a product uh, as a recalled product, you actually don't bring all of the products back in and destroy them. You simply make it illegal to sell them anymore. So what happened was a lot of these lawn darts ended up in people's garages and attics. And what happens with eBay is whatever's in your garage and attic and not used anymore ends up for sale on eBay. So I looked at uh looked read up on jarts and said oh my goodness we've got somebody selling jarts on ebay we need to get these off i went onto the site i didn't find one set of jarts i found about 20 and that was a moment for me because in that moment i realized not only do i have a jarts problem i've got a problem with every item that the consumer product safety commission or any other government agency has ever recalled as being dangerous how in the world are we going to keep our customers safe, comply with the law, when you've got decades of unsafe products that could be out on our website?
1: Just so sitting around in people's garages waiting to be sold.
2: That's right. Power tools, uh, baby toys. So I did something that uh, was probably a little unusual in hindsight. I pick up the phone, and I called the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And I said, hi. Uh, I'm with this internet company out on the west coast. I'd like to fly out and have a visit with you and they said why We've never had anybody from a private company actually want to come talk to us. Sure (laughs) I flew out I sat in the room and I brought with me a a Piece of paper that had the charts listing on there and I showed it to their head of compliance and I said I am quite worried Our company is worried, we deeply care about our customers. We don't want our customers to end up buying unsafe products and using them. The internet is a tool where this sort of thing can happen though. What I'd like to do is propose a partnership with the Consumer Product Safety Commission where you can work with us to educate people about these recalled items. We can help identify them before they're sold and we can keep people safe. Well, the Consumer Product Safety Commission love this idea. A week later, the head of the Consumer Product Safety Commission went out on the TV morning shows to talk about their new partnership with an internet company to help keep consumers safe. We gave them free space on our website. We worked with them to create keywords to identify products. We linked to their database. And it has been almost 20 years since we formed that partnership eBay has never been in legal trouble with the Consumer Product Safety Commission because the Consumer Product Safety Commission viewed eBay as a partner in trying to do the right thing. So my lesson coming away from that is if you try to do the right thing as a company, and in fact, affirmatively reach out to government and try to partner because you really care about consumers and you care about your customers, you may be able to solve legal problems that otherwise might seem intractable.
1: Well, and also, the regulators right now, with all due respect, are regulating things that they don't understand. So the more the technology companies reach out and partner with them, or at the very least educate them, the more effective, when regulation comes down the pipe, uh, it will be. So, um, but that is that is absolutely a model. And I have to say, I can, I can only imagine that the whole concept, again, almost like Airbnb and the sharing economy. Who would have thought that people would be emptying out their garages on eBay? You think about it with hindsight, it's very obvious. It's, you know, it's the, it's the baby seat that isn't the upgraded safety version. Or, or, you know, some toy that, frankly, before reading your book, I had never heard of.
2: Well, and we had a similar, uh, similar experience at Airbnb with discrimination. You know, after yeah. reports came out about discrimination on Airbnb and the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing sued us, I picked up the phone again. And I said, like to come down and talk to you. And they said, we don't want to talk to you. And I said, no, come on, talk to me. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll fly down. And if you'll just listen to me for 15 minutes, you don't have to say a word. So they finally agreed to it. And I went down to them and said, uh, I understand that you're upset about discrimination on Airbnb. The allegations that guests are having trouble getting a room on Airbnb because of the color of their skin. And I want you to know that The two of us could have a big fight about the law, about whether Airbnb is legally responsible. I said, but that doesn't really matter because Airbnb is as appalled about this conduct as you are, and we would much rather be your partner in fixing this because whatever you try to do with us in a lawsuit, we're going to go even further because this is contrary to our mission. And they were stunned. But... They ended up sitting down with us. We went through a whole host of solutions together. We worked out our differences very, very quickly, and we became partners in a very important project to help eliminate discrimination in short-term health.
1: There are a lot of companies that could learn from that, Rob. Uh, In particular, again, because regulators don't understand the technology. They're learning along with everybody else, except that they have many other things to worry about. So even if it's just a process of educating regulators, Already, that's going to enhance the quality of the regulation when it comes down the pike and it's going to enhance uh, the the impact for consumers and for society. Let me switch gears a little bit now, though, and talk about a couple of recent events. Uh, We started out this conversation acknowledging that we're both sheltering at home. COVID-19 is is a very serious, life-threatening crisis. How does a company like Airbnb manage? We've seen headlines about the company. But what are your highest priorities as chief ethics officer with respect to managing COVID-19? And what should employees, if we think about this from an employee standpoint, what should employees of any company be thinking about now when they go back to work and what is reasonable to ask of their companies?
2: A crisis is a time that reveals the character of a company. It pressure tests your values. So for Airbnb, it was obvious that the pandemic was going to have a major even catastrophic impact on the business. Travel went from uh, full speed ahead to practically zero overnight. There were a few things the company did, which I, uh, I think were very important. When when a crisis hits, you, you need to think about all of your stakeholders. And as a leader, the, you have to be willing to sacrifice first. So before Brian took any steps uh, to cut costs, uh, Brian imposed an immediate substantial pay cut on himself and on all the leadership. In a crisis, leaders must sacrifice first. Secondly, he thought about the employees. So employees were sent home to work from home immediately. And you know, the company did the best that it could then to figure out how it could weather the storm. Unfortunately, layoffs were necessary. I mean, the business- As you know, they are
1: pretty much everywhere.
2: They are. And there's nothing unethical about a layoff. You know, a, a, a company does what it can. And I think a lot of it is about doing what you can do to treat the employees who are affected empathetically uh, and in understanding what they must be going through. So Airbnb was generous in their severance, but beyond that did things like a year of health care because they realized that in a pandemic, having your health care is top of mind for everyone. So paying for a year of healthcare um, was one important part of what the company was able to do. The other thing the company realized is that in the cutback, what was it going to do with all of the the laptops from the individual employees? That that was a depreciated asset that it wouldn't need, but it could be a huge boost to employees who frankly might need another computer if they were going to be at home searching for a job. So the way the company was taking care of their children's school at home. That's right. So why not let the employees keep the laptop? So little things like that send a message that you do what you can do when you really care about people. Another thing the company did was it had to look at two other critical stakeholders, the guest and the host. So many guests had reservations that were non-refundable. What, is it, what do you do in, in a circumstance where the guests can no longer safely travel? And in fact, if they do travel, they might be spreading the pandemic to the community that they're traveling to. So what Airbnb did was declared an extraordinary circumstance and allowed many of those guests to cancel the reservations, um, which was the right thing to do for the guests and for the communities. Now, that in turn had a terrible effect on the host because the right. host was counting on this income uh, for, uh, to survive. Now... Airbnb owed them no legal obligation. Airbnb had the right to declare an extraordinary circumstance because of the pandemic, but just leaving the host in that kind of a situation would have been wrong. So the company created a $250 million fund that it used to partially reimburse the host, 25% of the value of any of those canceled reservations. Now, um, it was not full. Because the company could only do so much. But the fact that the company took $250 million to distribute to host in a circumstance like this sent a clear message that it cared about its host community as well. So part of the message is you need to think about all your stakeholders. Your employees are important. Your guests are important. Your hosts are important. The communities are important. Um, Instead of solely focusing on all of the financial
1: impact. Well, I mean, I think what you, you, your sort of allocation across stakeholders is very interesting because all of those stakeholders also have responsibility in your world. And you have brought them all to a different standard of ethical responsibility. Your hosts today have a different standard of ethical responsibility than they did pre your experience with racism. Uh, your guests today have a different level of responsibility than pre your experience with looting and, and trashing houses and the like. And I think it's, in particular, in the U.S. with respect to healthcare, this is something that a lot of smaller businesses are facing. And even my Stanford students are asking, how do smaller businesses ethically um, furlough people or ethically lay off people? And in the U.S., where we don't have healthcare, where our healthcare is very often tethered to work, your initiative to at least allow employees a year of healthcare is literally a life-saving initiative. Even
2: a furlough can be a means by which a company can keep employees on its health care rolls, eat without paying, without paying them a salary, but at least enable them to keep their health care, which is critical. There's a neat story out of Georgia with a pizza chain that needed to uh, shut down its restaurant business because of the pandemic, but it, would, it still had a little bit of business with to-go food. So what it did was it furloughed the employees so they could stay on the health insurance. And what they also did was they would deliver pizzas every day to the furloughed employees as a way to help try to feed those employees and let them know that they care. So little you can do little things. You do what you can to, to right. let people know that you care for them.
1: And there's no question that, I mean, that this COVID-19 is, you know, it came out of the blue. Uh, Nobody yet fully understands. And even though we're starting to see people opening up, uh, government leaders opening up, we're seeing it a lot in France, for example, or in Italy, and in different states across the US, we still don't have a vaccine. uh, We still don't have an effective therapeutic. And we still don't have a thorough understanding of who is going to be most adversely affected versus who might likely recover. So um, we, we are still in this limbo where there's more and more pressure on companies to get the economy back, uh, there's more and more pressure, even from a mental health standpoint, to get people back out in society. And yet the medical reality hasn't changed all that much. So it is a, it is going to be a, a very defining crisis. And as you say, the pressure test for a lot of companies and for a lot of individual leaders. Let me turn to a different issue since you started by talking about Airbnb's experience with racism. And let's talk about recent events a little bit. There, there's no question that for me, even as someone who has studied racism, and who regularly includes racism in my Stanford curriculum and in my work with companies, that moment of George Floyd was utterly indescribable. What have been your employees' reactions? What have been the discussions, if you can share them around the senior management team at Airbnb on this particular event?
2: It it is gut-wrenching to watch. It, I'd say, deeply saddens so many of us And I think that for Airbnb, having gone through the work that we had with discrimination in housing, unfortunately, um, it was not surprising that this sort of event could still happen. Um, What we hope is that it will be a moment, that uh, a moment that will get people to focus in a meaningful way On the need for change and the need for racial equality in this country. Sometimes it takes a moment uh, to get everyone's attention really fully focused on a problem. Uh, And it's our hope, in the the discussions we've had internally at Airbnb, it's our hope that this is a moment, that uh, that video is is so powerful and so sickening that. it's now hard to turn away from the problem of racial inequality in this country. So, uh, I also think that we are becoming increasingly connected as a world. You know, the internet is just the start of it. Look at the virus, look at climate change. It is becoming harder and harder for us to focus on our own narrow interests and our own lanes, focus just on making money this quarter, or focus just on our individual problems. Because all of our problems are connected. We can't simply solve a problem by thinking about ourselves. And I think that um, the the issue with racial justice in this country is yet another example of, you you can't have justice in the world until we really have racial justice in our country. Just like we can't solve climate change by focusing on one, one narrow area. We all have to work together. We all have to contribute to this.
1: Well, I certainly share your word sickening. And I have to say, I've asked myself repeatedly in the last couple of weeks, what will it take? And why Why wasn't the lesson learned last time or the time before that or the time before that? In some of the lessons that we take into companies, there's a lot of talk about unconscious bias. Like to, to say today that I, I don't believe that any of this was unconscious bias. There is unconscious bias and there's a place for training and it is critically important, particularly in large organizations or in organizations like yours, that enlist ordinary consumers in a wonderful way as hosts and as guests. Because we don't all—we're we're all guilty of unconscious bias. There's nothing, in my view, that was unconscious about that. I don't get stopped by the police in that way. So, so any attempt to call any of that unconscious bias, I find utterly exasperating.
2: That video shows that we have an actual bias problem still in the 21st century. Um, absolutely. It has to be addressed. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. Rob, I'm conscious of time, and I just want to get to a couple of general questions. Your book, and, I, and, and I'll show it and um, reference it on the site with the, the video, but your book has so many extraordinary lessons for companies, for employees, for leadership, for other stakeholders that work with companies. But if you had to extract, say, two or three lessons from the book for just ordinary citizens, what would that be?
2: Well, we have to get over... A discomfort with talking about integrity. Uh, You know, for too long, integrity has been this poster on the wall with the pretty lake and the trees and the word integrity underneath, but nobody ever talks about what it means and how it can and and what it means in the workplace. We we need to be intentional about integrity. That is, we have to understand what our purpose is, what our values are. We have to define for ourselves a bit about how do we commit to act in this world? So to give you one small example, uh, a number of problems have arisen out of alcohol in the workplace. Absolutely. Yet, companies continue to throw wild holiday parties um, and serve alcohol inside the company. And it struck me that odd that no one ever had a conversation about alcohol. So at Airbnb, I started a conversation And I talked about Rob's rule. Rob, for me, I've had a lifelong rule that I will never have more than two drinks in any professional setting. You know, why two? Well, uh, I know that if I have one drink or two drinks as part of in a social setting at work, I'm not going to do anything stupid that's going to ruin my career and hurt others. Beyond that, um, I don't know how I might act and it's not worth my job so right. no matter what happens in any work setting that's my absolute limit and i would tell people at airbnb um everybody needs to have their own rule some people don't drink at all terrific or they don't drink at all in a work setting that's great too or maybe it's just one drink
1: but you everybody I needs I really love that rob have a rule that works for you because i completely agree with you i've seen so many tragic situations in the workplace, and in particular, as you said earlier in the interview, um, because of social media. And I think more generally, people ask me, well, what are the limits and how do I behave at a, as you said, a a Christmas party at the office or some other kind of, you know, a Friday night event or a Sunday picnic? And I always have the same answer, because when you think about work social, drop the word social, it's a work event. If you're at an event with your colleagues from work, whether it's at work or at a, a picnic site, it's a work event, and I love your sort of have your own rule. your whether it's one drink or no drinks or two drinks, it's not five drinks.
2: And make yeah. the rule in advance as I used to tell exactly. I used to tell people, uh, the worst time to make a decision about how much to drink at a work event is while you're drinking at a work event. but too often that's what people do.
1: No, exactly. so uh, I also really love the the sort of the takeaway about finding our own principles, and that's an exercise that I do by the way, with my Stanford students every year, which is think about you know, what your own set of values is. And just kind of in winding up, if we step back a little bit, what, what would you say just as Rob, forgetting about your title as Chief Ethics Officer, what would you say are the one or two things that most trouble you today and that most inspire you today from an ethical standpoint?
2: One thing that, that troubles me is the, the fact that so many companies are still focused on profit and profit only. The, all of the numbers that they talk about, everything that they talk about, you know, they, they may have some language to the contrary, but then in their, uh, all their public statements, they're talking about the financial numbers. It's time for companies to recognize that we need them to step up. We need more from them than just a focus on a quarterly profit number. We need them to understand that we have big problems in the world, and they've got multiple stakeholders shareholders are not the only people that matter in the world. They're touching the lives of employees, customers, suppliers, vendors, and communities. And if we're going to solve some of these big problems in the world, we need them to be thinking about these, these other stakeholders. Um, you know, when it comes to inspiration, I, you know, I go back to my mom. When I was a young kid, we were at a grocery store. And we walked out of the grocery store, and my mom suddenly stopped and turned around and said, we got to go back in. And I said, why? We got back in, my mom had gotten the wrong change, but she had not been shortchanged, she'd actually been given too much change. And I never forget the shocked look on the face of the person at the cash register and the gratitude for the fact that my mom actually went in uh, to return money. So I made a point at that stage of my life that that was the right thing to do because my mom told me that money didn't belong to us. So I've gone back, I've marched my kids back into a store a couple of times, using that same principle, um, knowing and hearing their complaints that we've got to drag back into the store to do something, but knowing that it sends the right message. Uh, and we, we need to be sending messages like that to people that um, it's so easy to come up with an excuse not to go back into that store. It's easy to say, oh, they make a lot of money, Oh, we give them a lot of money. They're very profitable anyway. It doesn't matter. Um, But in fact, it does matter.
1: I wrote a blog once uh, called Sweat the Small Stuff. And I think that what your point is so inspiring and your story is so inspiring because very often small things add up and you just don't know what the tipping point is gonna be. And I think most importantly, Your story leads me to remember how easily small things become habits, particularly when we're dealing with children, but also us as adults. It's very easy just to get in the habit of saying it doesn't matter that much. But in fact, decision by decision, all of this matters. Rob, I want to end by just congratulating you again for the wonderful book. It is truly an accomplishment. I look forward to sharing it widely. And thank you so much again for taking the time today. It's really been wonderful to hear from you and, and wonderful to get your perspective directly on some of the things going on in the world and, and indeed on your book. So again, many thanks.
2: Well, th- thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to talk with you today. It's, it's, I think it's such an important issue for the world. I think the world's moving in this direction. And anything that, that each of us can do to encourage it a little bit more I think is
1: important. Thank you.